My entire life, I've marveled at people who managed to do it all, but with positivity and this sense of possibility. I can make this work. I met my guest today many years ago at a brainstorming event. It was stacked with creative people and from PR and advertising and research. And we're there to try to find an idea for a brand who, was, who really wanted to target the teen market. My guest was there representing the teen market. At the time, she looked like a teen. And this room of talent, for some reason, she stood out with her ideas and her convictions. She never felt she was an imposter, nor did she ever feel that she was entitled to an opinion. She just made a presence. So we stayed in touch. And I remember saying to her about five or six years later, you're gonna be Canada's Oprah. You're magnetic, you're insightful, you have empathy, and you have ambition. Have you ever asked yourself, what makes a great leader at work and at home? Now let's widen the lens. What makes a great boss, a great manager, a great coach, a great parent, a great friend? I believe the secret is confidence. Now when I say the word confidence, what I'm really talking about, it's an attitude. It's how we think about ourselves. And how we think about ourselves drives how we feel about ourselves, which drives our behavior. And this is why confidence is so incredibly important. Karen Gordon is a force of human nature. I honestly don't know how she does it all. Family first, yet she found time to get her doctorate in marriage and family. She's spoken to over a half a million people in 17 countries. She's collaborated with professors from the Wharton School to develop an EQ curriculum for family business. She's been the media spokesperson for Maple Leaf Foods, Microsoft, eHarmony, and UNICEF, a professional counselor for 25 years, and a frequent contributor to the conversation of Good Morning America, Forbes, New York Times, and CityLine. And if that isn't enough, she's just released her new book, The Three Chairs, which is a New York Times, USA Today, and Amazon bestseller. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. I'm both a fan and a friend. You're in for a treat today as she talks about the secrets to her success and yours. Karen Gordon, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Wow, Tony, thanks so much for having me. What an incredible intro, my goodness. So my first question is, this really building on my intro, how do you manage to do it all? Oh, you know, I get asked that question a lot and I am, I love time management. I love focusing on priorities and I think making sure that all my decisions are value-based. I think this is a big piece that's missing. Uh, A lot of times we think about, you know, you know, can we have it all? I think you can have it all, but in different seasons. And I think, you know, when I had my twins 14, almost 15 years ago, I remember being really strategic in terms of doing my mat leave, how long I was going to be doing it. And then realizing for this season, I'm going to work part-time, I'm going to dial it back. And then when the kids went back to school, then I was able to dial it back up. And so I was able to, I mean, being an entrepreneur, you're able to do that, right? Not everybody can do that, but being an entrepreneur, you can kind of control your schedule. And so I think for me, it was just really being razor focused on what are the values that I have in my life that my husband and I have, and then making sure you're making decisions very consciously and strategically according to those values and being very clear about what you're, you know, what are you going to say yes to? What are you going to say no to? So it's definitely a process and there's been seasons that I've done it really well and some that I haven't done as well, but I think that would be kind of the art and the science a little bit behind it. So talk to me about your parents because I'm fascinated all the extraordinary people I've had on the show and so much of it seems to be their upbringing, their parents, their values. Were you fortunate to have parents that believed in you and kind of set you up for this kind of success? Definitely. I mean, for anybody who's seen my TED talk that just came out a couple of weeks ago, I talk about being diagnosed with a severe learning disability in grade eight, toolbox 
by a clinical psychologist that I'd be lucky to finish high school and talk about kind of my battle with that growing up. And it was the way that my parents handled it was a, which was a game changer for me. You know, if they had handled it kind of just pushing me, I think I would have massively resisted to it. But, you know, my dad, he sat me down. He said, you know, Karen, from this day forward, we're going to, we're not going to ask to see your report card. We're going to ask you one question on the day of report card, which is, did you try your absolute best? Because you can control your best. You can, you can control your input. You can't control your output. And the second that he said that, all of a sudden I felt like I had hope again, that all of a sudden I realized that when we see the whole anxiety epidemic that's actually happening, we're, we're, we're focusing on things that people can't control. That's why people, you know, control and anxiety are like besties. They hang out all the time. If you, so if you can kind of get your kids to focus on things that they can control, which is their time management, their effort, asking for help, uh, sitting in the front of the class, you know, asking for two get them to focus on things that they can control, all of a sudden they have their hope back. And so when my father sat me down and, and, and got me to kind of really focus in on what could I control in my circumstance, I, I failed so much. It's like, you're not afraid of failure anymore, right? So so having that mindset was a game changer for me. And I think it really set me up for success and just kind of really started teaching me a lot about just the, those basic leadership principles around asking for help and taking risks and and striving for excellence, not perfection, all the things I talk about in the TED Talk, you know, it really kind of started really, I think, for my mom and dad, for sure. So I interviewed Susan Cain a few weeks ago, and she did this incredible book called Quiet about introverts and then Bittersweet about dealing with sorrow. And both of them are an opportunity. The society tends to sort of paint you a certain way. And if you allow it to be painted that way, you actually are on your back feet. So what you're saying to me is your dad said, you know what, this is these are the cards you dealt Let's turn them into your superpower. Totally. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because at the time when I got my diet, and it, you know, just to kind of give a little bit of context for everybody listening, my father was a pastor, a uh, church planter actually, uh, but extremely bright and did his doctorate in Princeton. So he got his doctorate in theology from Princeton. My mom, teacher, my grandmother was one of the first female doctors in the 1940s in Germany who lived with me. She was almost a second parent. So I had like these three power forces in my life as a child, but they all kind of had the same philosophy, which was focus on what you can control. Like I can't even begin to emphasize it enough. Like it seems like such a basic leadership principle to really get our children to focus on what they can control. It gives this like superpower. And, and so there's a lot of things in life that we cannot control. For me, I can't control my learning disability. That's, that's what I had. And so it forces me at 14 years old to really start thinking about, okay, I cannot control my learning disability. I can control how I respond to my learning disability. And again, I had to fail badly in grade nine to kind of have that wake up call. It was not, this is not a straight line by any stretch. But once I focused on my input, I felt like I had my power back. I felt like I had hope back. And I feel like when we're looking at anxiety epidemic, we're looking at the mental health problems, that is such a foundational piece that we have to all be paying attention to. What are the things I can control in my circumstance and putting our energy and focus on that instead of playing the victim or focusing on things that we cannot control? Because there's tons of things we cannot control. So I've got two questions built on it. One, do you think we're leaving a lot of Karen Gordons behind because they don't have parenting or, or, or support system that says it's okay if you're not normal? And the second question I have on that, build on it, do you think that's why you went into the profession you went helping teens so that you could reach out and sort of find those Karen Gordons down the road and, and realize that inside them are, everybody has 
certain superpowers? Without question, we are leaving thousands and millions of people behind. I mean, you know, my word, I, I don't know about you, Tony, but for me every year when I set goals, I always choose one word. And my word for this year was impact. And that was one of the reasons why I'd want to do a TED Talk because yes, I wrote the book, Three Chairs, which has been doing really well, but TED Talks are different, right? Because it just re- reaches a wider audience. And for me, it was around an impact. Like how can I help as many people people as I possibly can that won't come to our office, that won't get coaching, that maybe can't afford it or don't have the resources or, you know, the, the TED talk just kind of like opens the, the net up. And then the second part to your question is for sure that became my life's purpose was to inspire other people, to help people live their best life. In my TED talk, I talk about, you know, everything, you know, about the science, about confidence and how that affects decision-making, you know, and I talk about it from an academic, you know, sharing the research, professionally doing this for 25 years, but I talk about this also as a person, like I have lived this, like everything that I'm teaching are things that I personally have lived. Like I know what that feels like to have that rejection, that failure, that feedback where you feel like, you know, your whole life is kind of going up in smoke because, you know, somebody's just giving you horrible feedback. Like, so I know what that feels like. And so I think, for me, that's definitely fueled in terms of my own purpose, my career purpose, in terms of really instilling hope. You know, when I read comments and people say, you know, I have hope again, like to me, that's the whole point is to give hope. We all need, we need more hope in this world. Everything is so dismal and depressing, but it doesn't have to be, you know? And I, I also love Susan Cain. I love her work. I love her book, Quiet. I loved her TED Talk, her superpowers. She gave a different lens on something that had a very, for a lot of people had a negative connotation about being an introvert. She put a new spin on it. And I really hope in, in my kind of work that people will see, doesn't matter your adversity or your difficulties, that you can you can spin it, you can look at it a little differently and you can have hope and have a new reframe based on whatever your circumstances. I have a, a, a memory of myself, one of these long tables, and I'm pouring over all the journals, the research about confidence and how that affects leadership and decision-making. And I was blown away, it was all there, and I'm pouring over it. These three emerging attitudes popped up, and I was like reading it going, oh, this is so powerful. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My special guest is Dr. Karen Gordon. Tell the listeners this concept of the three chairs. And as you're listening to this, I want you to imagine there's two white chairs on the stage and in the center, there's a red chair. So my second year of practice, I had a teenager that was telling me her battle with with confidence or her lack of confidence. And it it was just the way that she looked at me and she said, you know, nothing's being done about this in the school. I just remember looking at her going, I'm going to do something. Like I literally blurted, I'm going to do something. And so I spent the next several days uh, going to uh, one of the universities here in Toronto and pulling out all the journals and pulling out the research of you know, the power of confidence. And I thought, how can I, how can I make this come alive? There was so much incredible research that had already been done. So I created this concept, this very, very simple paradigm or model that I call the three chairs. And if you can kind of picture like three chairs on a stage, so you've got the left chair, then you've got the middle chair and the right chair. And when I would go in high schools, I would, I would get principals to give me three actors and they would sit in one of these three chairs and they would have 30 seconds. They had to read a character sketch and they'd have to act on improv the character. So I'm going to go through it really quickly with everybody listening. And I want you to think to yourself, which chair are you sitting in the majority of the time? And then how does that affect your life? How does that affect your leadership? So the one in the 
the left chair has what we call low self-esteem or the blind attitude, the, the, the person that kind of puts themselves down. They, they're critical towards themselves. They may look very confident, but they, but inside they're battling deep with, with insecurity. Uh, the one on the right chair is what we call false self-esteem, or that is the disguised attitude or the arrogant attitude. They're cocky. They're full of themselves. They will put people, you know, put people down. They're arrogant. Then you've got the, the person in the middle chair who is what we call the, who has healthy self-esteem or confidence. And they have this beautiful sense of confidence where they, they have a sense of who they are. They lift other people. They encourage other people. They know how to manage those arrogant folks in their life. The book is really focused on business and how the three chairs affect leadership in businesses and organizations and teams. The TED Talk is more of a broader audience. It's really around how does the, how do the three chairs impact everybody from like a preschooler to, you know, a Fortune 500 CEO? You can apply the three chairs in, in every single age group. I've, I've taught the three chairs to kindergarten kids and they can get it. Like it's amazing. And so the whole point about the three chairs is getting people to think about which chair do I sit in the majority of the time? And then how does it impact my life? How does it impact who I'm attracted to from a partner? Has it impact how I deal with conflict? How does it impact... Um, goal setting, risk taking, perfection, anxiety, mental health. It's all based on science and research. And I kind of connect the dots. I'm getting people to see themselves in these different chairs. And then most importantly, teaching people, how do you help yourself sit in the middle chair? Um, and, and that these are actionable steps people can do. And so that's the hope that people feel. It's not just the research. There's lots of research, but it's showing the actionable steps. That's what people get really excited about and helping themselves learning how to sit in the middle chair. So let's go back to this patient that you had very early on in your practice who came in who was sitting in that chair with low self-esteem and low confidence. She was low self-esteem, low confidence, depressed, anxious. And that's all very common of the person who sits in the left, the left chair. So, you know, in psychology, things are not black and white. You know, I can't say if somebody's in the left chair, therefore they will be anxious or depressed. I can say though, based on science and research, if somebody's sitting in the left chair, they have a higher chance based on research that they might struggle with anxiety or depression. That's all based on science. You know, the powerful thing is that we learn what chair we sit in. Um, we learn what chair we sit in from a variety of different sources. We're not born in a chair. We learn what chair to sit in. There's a lot of factors that kind of impact which chair we actually sit in. You know, it's certainly the people that we, we surround ourselves with, our family. I find one of the biggest determining factors, and this isn't, you know, the only one, is the same gendered parent. Parenting remains one of the most powerful ways with where a child ends up sitting. And there's definitely exceptions to that for sure. Uh, but, you know, ch you know, who do you surround yourself with? Because, you know, the way that I describe it is that if I've got a 13-year-old daughter and she sees me sitting in that left chair and she sees me care what other people think, she sees me afraid to take risks, she sees me fall apart when I get feedback, she'll kind of pick up all of those like really subtle messages. You know, it's so critical that as parents, for everybody listening to parent, that we need to model what is that middle chair parent look like? You know, how do they take risks? Well, they focus on excellence, not perfection. They surround themselves with other people that are in the middle chair. They they don't care so much what people think. They set boundaries. They learn how to say no. Like there's all those kind of subtle things that as parents remain the number one source of influence on where your child sit. Yes, there's other variables for sure, but parents remain the number one source of influence I have found. So the two side chairs, the, the one with arrogance and the one with low self-esteem. Yeah. 
are they attracted to each other or are they opposing magnets? Good question, Tony. And that's the part that actually scares parents is they're actually often attracted to each other. The left chair is often attracted to the right chair. The insecure person is often attracted to the arrogant person. And the reason why, again, in psychology, things are not black and white. There's, you know, we can just say that things are correlated or not correlated. Um, but based on research, we find that people are attracted to people who think the same way they do. So if I'm putting myself down, I'm in the left chair and I'm putting myself down, I will be unconsciously attracted to people who also put me down. Let's say I'm like 20 years old and I've got some a date with somebody in the middle chair and I'm in the left chair, I'm going and they're building me up. Well, it's not going to match my thinking. So what am I going to do is I'm going to discount it. I'll be like, you're just saying that you're supposed to say that the person, in the right chair, the arrogant person will put me down. It matches what I'm telling myself. And that's why those two are often, often attracted to each other. I see exceptions to this. Okay. And I do. And I think this is where the education piece is so amazing. I've definitely seen exceptions where somebody in the left chair is attracted to somebody in the middle chair, but it doesn't happen as often. That honestly, when I do parenting conferences, that part scares parents because they're like, I got to help my kids sit in the middle chair. Because if your kids in the middle chair, Everything else kind of falls into place. They have a healthy self-concept. They're then attracted to friends and partners in the middle chair. They have a healthy mindset around goal setting. They don't, they're, they're, you know, how they handle feedback. Everything starts falling into place when we can help our kids learn to sit in the middle chair. So what advice, because I have a lot of young listeners that listen to this podcast, and what advice can you give if I happen to be sitting in a chair where I don't have that confidence and self-esteem? Yeah. My parents are arrogant. They're bullies. They're yelling and screaming at hockey games or they're just, you know, and where can I go to find my way to the middle? Every single one of us, every one of us listening right now can learn to sit in the middle chair. Okay. Every one of us, it does not matter our, our education. It doesn't matter our age. It doesn't matter our gender. It doesn't matter. You know, nothing matters. All that matters is our attitude that we can choose to learn how to sit in the middle chair. So how do you do it? One of the best ways is to really identify who are people, and I would just get people listening right now, take a pen and paper out, make a list of people in your life that are examples, real living people in your life that are sitting in the middle chair. Um, I do this, I volunteer at a camp called Muskoka Woods, and I, I do this exercise with a lot of the, their grade 12 students, and I get them to like pen to paper, who are the people in your life that are, are in the middle chair? It could be a grandfather, it could be a coach, it could be a camp counselor, it could be a teacher, it could be a soccer coach. Um, and what you do is you start identifying who are the real people in my life that are examples of someone who's sitting in the middle chair. And then try to spend as much time with them as you can, because it's like a language. You know, if I tell somebody, you know, to be successful, you got to learn, you got to learn French. Well, yes, you could read a book and yes, you could like, you know, watch something. But the best way to do it is go to France, immerse yourself in the language. This is kind of with what the topic is. This is this really is the language of emotional intelligence sitting in the middle chair. So you want to immerse yourself with other people who are already sitting in the middle chair because you'll learn you'll learn so much from them around how they handle bad feedback how they ask for help how they have how they have humility they don't have all the answers they ask for help they their feedback uh they're feedback hungry they seek for feedback they how they learn to set goals when, when they don't get a goal how do they handle that You'll learn so much incredible information by just spending time with people in the middle chair. And so that would be, you know, that's where mentoring comes in. Very powerful, you know. So so that'd be my encouragement for anybody listening is really put pen to paper and think about who are those people in my life that are sitting in the middle chair 
and and really spend as much time with them and learn how they live life in one of those kind of those success principles because you'll learn a ton. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. You listen to Chatter That Matters. When we come back, we talk about family business when both partners are involved. Who has influence? Who has authority? And how do you work together to not only achieve the goals of the business, but the goals of your family? Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Ideas matter. Ideas are the oxygen of human endeavor. They breathe life into how we work, live, and play. Ideas let us create and innovate and overcome complex and often challenging circumstances. Big or small, revolutionary or evolutionary, almost every positive step forward begins with a good idea. So bring your ideas to RBC because they matter, and they'll bring theirs because you matter. Ideas happen at RBC. Mentoring is a game changer. And for anybody who's even thinking about it, I strongly recommend get yourself a mentor or maybe get yourself mentors. Like it doesn't have to be one. You can have a financial mentor. You can have a business mentor. You can have a career mentor. You can have a spiritual mentor. You know, you can have different people in your life. I think we need the village of different people, the wise counselor or resource team to kind of weigh into our life. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman. Presented by RBC. Chatting with Dr. Karen Gordon. I've known her forever and she's impressed me every time. So let's talk about mentorship and because you've also written a book on that. You've, you do a lot of speaking on it. You're a big believer in it. How important is it for people to find a mentor that maybe is even outside their friends and family? Somebody that's that could be a complete stranger, but that together you're going to go on a journey. Well, you know, you know me for a long time. You've mentored me for years. I mean, mentoring, it was like, I often tell people when I kind of talk about my own kind of career change, I often talk about you, Tony, and how you were like that mentor, the person I picked up the phone going, I know a lot, but I don't know everything. And I don't know anything about business. I know psychology and I know counseling, you know, and I knew when I, when I realized the value of mentoring is get a mentor in it, whatever the skill that you want to learn find a mentor in that area. So it doesn't, you know, I often get asked is like, you know, how do you choose a mentor? Well, what, what skill do you want to learn that you don't know? And who is the best person in your circle of influence to and pick up the phone and ask them. And I still remember when I had the, when I had the courage to call you to ask me my mentor, I was so nervous. I actually wrote a little script <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a little script back in the day when we didn't, you know, email so much, you know, I had a little script and I'm thinking, please let it go to voicemail. Please let it go to voice. And, and I, I had my little script around how I was going to ask you to be my mentor. And, and then, you know, when you can record a message and you're like, delete if it's not very good. And I was like stuttering. And of course, like, I don't even, I don't think there was like the delete option. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is like so embarrassing. But I thought I've got to do it. Like I, I want to do it. I wanted to learn business. I wanted to learn and then you call me back. You call me back in like five minutes and you said, yes, I was just like so elated. So where you stood out is you always came prepared. You had your questions. You asked other questions on top of those questions. You would go back and sometimes call me the next day and say, I don't quite understand what you meant here or there, or I have an idea. What, what would you think? And suddenly that person's vested in your career and your success. I remember the first time you were, couldn't, you know, what should I charge to speak? Oh yeah. I said, Karen, whatever you charge today, it'll be the lowest fee you'll ever charge. Because believe me, you're going to be Canada's top speaker in, in within 10 years. So I want to move from mentorship and to talk a little bit about your life. So when you got married and I was so 
delighted to be at your wedding. And a story I never told you was that little church in Uxbridge. Oh, yes. We go to your reception. You're not serving alcohol and you want to play games. And I'm going, this is the recipe for the, for the, it could be the worst. And I didn't know anybody there really except you, but it could be the worst. And it was fantastic. First of all, you married this tall, dashing human being who you could just like, he just, he lit up when, when you walked down the aisle. But the second thing, you've always used games. What's the fascination with games? Is that just because that's how you learned or is that just part of your, your uh, playbook? Yeah, I know exactly why games became part of my playbook. So in grade 12 or 13, back in, you know, we still had grade 13. I'm battling this disability and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get myself on the honors roll so I can get into my school of choice. And and I realized that there's certain certain types of tests I could do, don't do well. I, I do horrible at multiple choice. The parts of the, the courses I did, I excelled at was anything that involved a presentation. I noticed that a lot of these presentations were like really boring and people kind of had these speeches and they were dull. And I was like, I was bored. And I thought, how do you make it come alive? I got to make my presentation stand out. I've got to get a really strong mark on these presentations. I started making, doing games and making interactive. I would have one of my presentations. I'd like turn the music off and like turn music on. And it was experiential. And I got like people in the class to take on different roles. And I, I just crushed it. And I realized that something that was so radically different. And the people are like, I just love your presentations, Karen. They like, they stand out. And so I learned that in high school. And then when I started speaking to high school students in my early twenties, you know, I often tell anybody who wants to be a speaker, if you can survive speaking in a high school, you are going to be fine because they, it is so ruthless as an environment. They will love you or they will hate you. And it, and the only way I realized, how could I get you know, 500, 1,000 students to pay attention. It had to be fun. And then when I started speaking in businesses and corporations, the first year I tried to keep it really corporate and very professional and no games. And then there was one event and everybody looked so dull and bored. I thought I got to like just shake this up a little bit and just in improv. I pulled out my speaker because I always have a speaker in my suitcase, turned on the music and and got people to do an interactive game. And it just like the energy just went through the roof. I feel like as adults, we just we need it just as much. I got to come back to this brain of yours, which synthesizes so many different pieces of information and draws conclusions. But before I, I go to that question, back to the wedding, the dashing print sprint. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I call him a guy. <laughs> Like he builds houses, he's a chiropractor, he creates websites. I mean, he's a massive part of your success and he's happy to be Keith Richards to you being Mick Jagger. What advice can you give to family business to find a way to define your roles in a way that both feel they have purpose, they both feel that they are on equal footing, even though one is the one consuming the spotlight. So I think the real secret with this, well, first of all, Brent is, he's opposite in every way. I mean, you know, Brent, so he is opposite in personality. He's opposite in a lot of our interests, but we're shared in our value system. And I think that's really critical. So you can be, you know, people often say opposites attract, and it's true. A lot of times opposites do attract, but you want to make sure that your value system's the same. Um, so I think that that's a that's a huge piece to it. And our strengths complement each other. Like I think there's a real, you know, strength that I have, he doesn't have. Strengths that he has, I don't have. And so you not everybody can be married to your business partner. For us, it's been a really, really good fit. We love working together. But we've also had to learn how to set boundaries with it. You know, and this is a big thing that happens with a lot of family business. You got to set boundaries. Otherwise, we could talk shop all the time. So, you know, come five o'clock, we really do try to like take the business hat off and and turn on the husband wife hat on, you know, so and we're not perfect with that, uh, but we certainly try. So I think that's a huge piece to it. Even on the website, when the our website got redesigned and our writer and she was writing it up, you know, 
you know, one of the things that she kind of wrote, which I think is really true, is, you know, I'm the face that people see of our business, but he's the one that does all the back end. I mean, Tony, you know, Brent. I mean, he, you know, I might come up with these crazy ideas. He's the one that's executing like everything with the team, but he likes that role. He's an executor. He's an implementer. That That's what he does really well. And so I think it's it's something you just have to really kind of know with what your partner is. What are the things that they really need to kind of shine and really being very intentional about keeping marriage separate from business. Yes, there's parts that are going to be merged, but you know, really kind of keep the lane separate because too many of the family businesses that I coach, it's like they never take that one hat off. Like they're constantly talking business and it's 11 o'clock at night. You want to just kind of keep those. Those are two systems that are interconnected, but they are separate. But you're also parents. Do you ever find time just for yourself? We love family adventure. We love traveling. When I travel, I become my introverted side, like become start screaming. I feel like, you know, I'm extroverted, but I find like my work, you know, uses up all my extrovertedness. So when it comes to my free time, I find that definitely has shifted for sure as I've gotten older is that I just crave my downtime. I crave my family time. I crave, you know, you know, just quiet like I really kind of crave that. And so for me, it's it's design, it's decorating, it's reading magazines. It's like just hanging out, it's paddle boarding, it's playing tennis. That's certainly something that I coach a lot of my clients with is really thinking about like, be very mindful. Like, what do you need in the stage that you're at? What do you need? And, you know, the person listening that is 25, that's just had a baby, their needs are going to be different than somebody who is 40 years old and their kids are like entering high school. So I think it's a really good question for all of us listening to think about what is it that I need to thrive and to be my best version of self? And what does my partner need? And being mindful of actually as well. And so that you can kind of really make sure that you're growing together in whatever season stage that you're at. It just just came to me, but years ago, uh, I think I was in grade two or three and the teacher said, what does your dad do for a living? And I said, well, he sells magazines. I didn't realize that he was at a conference board and he was selling, you know, <laughs> and he was so mad at me because he goes, I don't sell magazines for a living. How would your boys describe you and what you do? Oh, that's a good question. You know, somebody just asked them, actually, one of their teachers asked them that. So they describe me as they, they describe their mom as a heart doctor. <laughs> I thought that's a really cute. That's a really cute description is she's a heart doctor. She helps people with their hearts. And how do you, how do you stay centered chair? When, you know, Good Morning America is calling to say, come on down, we want you on the show. You bring out a book, it's a bestseller. 500,000 people have paid to hear you speak in 17 countries around the world. How do you keep yourself centered so that you don't become, you know, a bit of a diva? Yeah. And this is where I think you need a really good spouse and you need good family. You know, this is the thing about family is be really open to feedback. Like if I'm getting, if I'm getting too busy and I'm feeling stressed, my, my family will call me out on it. Like without question, you know, I have very strong people in my life that have no problem saying you're feeling stressed, you're, you're stressed out, you're, you're, you're not being your best. So those people are my parents, my husband and my two kids, you know, being in that middle chair, you've got to have those people in your life that are, that are going to be strong enough to call you out on it. Because part of being in that middle chair is that sense of humility. Set realistic goals. Actually, goal setting is an amazing way to learn to sit in the middle chair, but you have to be careful with it. You've got to make sure you, you set the goal realistic, you give it everything you've got, you step on the gas, you take initiative, you ask for help, you strive for excellence, not perfection, and then you accept whatever your best. Why? Because I am enough. 
You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Dr. Karen Gordon. He's just delivered an incredible TED Talk. You know, when we were chatting before we started the interview and we're talking about my new grandchild, I started immediately seeing the world 100 years out and I got some anxiety. Mm -hmm. And then I just happened to be researching for this interview and you talk about this this whole sense of eco-anxiety and how it's paralyzing kids. Tell me a little bit more about this and and is there ways to counter? Because it sounds like it's serious. This is a big deal. I mean, so anxiety is focused on things we cannot control. So the whole eco-anxiety is a real thing. Um, And you'll see it with like the younger generations. And I think, you know, again, Anxiety is very connected to control. So a lot of people who have anxiety is because they're focusing on something they cannot control. So the way you kind of help people to reduce anxiety is to get them to focus on a plan. You know, very simple things that people can do to start focusing on what can they control regarding it. But but explain eco-anxiety. To me, that was when you're talking about as we're hitting every day that the planet's burning up, there's no future. So that's creating this sense of living for today, carpe diem, anxiety, why should I care? And then I got to add to that. I mean, I have to believe this, this storm of negativity in terms of pandemic, the war that's happening. What do you think we can do to help the children create this plan and realize that there is things that they can choose to do to make the most of the circumstances they're given, even if those circumstances like climate are out of their control. Yeah, it's interesting. Somebody actually messaged me kind of along this talk uh, or this question, um, messaged me on Instagram. There's so much negativity that's happening right now, to your point, right? There, there's negativity and it's also almost like the, this divisive kind of mentality. Everything is kind of this is negative, everything's heavy. It's very heavy. Like there are external stressors that we are all part of that we, you know, that are happening around us. We cannot control the stressor. We can control how we respond to the stressor. You know, RBC is a sponsor of this platform. And I was absolutely delighted to see you as a 2021 nominee for RBC Entrepreneur of the Year. It really opened my mind to how far you've taken your business, that you're no longer this single force of nature. You're, you know, you're coaching, you're delivering talks, you're speaking. Honestly, it is such a joy for me, Tony. And I I just thank you. I mean, you are, you really helped me kind of bridge that, you know, make that transition from working with families to businesses. And I remember asking you in your office, I'm like, do I have to go back and get an MBA? I remember asking you, you're like, no, don't need to do it. Like just, you've got enough in your wheelhouse. Like you just got to transfer it. And again, going back to anybody who's listening, get yourself a mentor, like have the courage to pick up the phone. It was such a game changer for me that I had these tools. I just had to kind of learn how to apply it more in the business sense. So now we are working with companies all around the world in different industries. Our program, uh, Success Intelligence, it's a leadership coaching program, is now licensed by 4,000 people in seven countries. But I've always thought like I'm really a teacher. At the heart of it, I'm really a teacher. I, I know how to take complex research and simplify it and make it actionable. And so so now that we can kind of use the internet and teach people around the world how to how to build confidence, how to have um, leadership, emotional intelligence is just so satisfying. I just love that. Like I get so much joy from that. So my final question is how does a, someone that had a learning disability through your, just this passion, you find a way you make it actionable. I think it's actually my disability, to be honest. You know, if somebody was to ask me now, would you, if you had a choice, Karen, would you take it or not take it? If you really had a choice without question, I would say, sign me up for my disability because I actually think my disability almost helped me figure out uh, how to do that. Because when I would be studying things in high school, 
and I would listen to teachers and I would be, my auditory processing was just, I, I wasn't able to do it. I would have to go back home and restudy the notes. And it was when I would actually restudy the notes, I had to retrain my brain how to understand the information. So what, what I was doing is I was actually finding patterns in the information so that my brain could actually understand it. My disability almost kind of started training my brain to look for patterns to try to make it easy for me to understand. My curse became my blessing to kind of, so now when I look at research, it's almost the same way. I'm able to kind of look at it all and I just, my brain automatically starts finding the patterns, find the patterns and to simplify it so that people can understand it and then give them an actionable item. That's where the hope comes from. It's not just learning about it. It's like getting, encouraging and inspiring people to take action. What's the best way for people to, I know a lot of people are going to, uh, is Amazon the three chairs? It must be a Canadian company that sells this. Uh... Amazon has honestly been amazing. So Amazon.ca, Amazon.com, you know, we were thrilled to make it to the Wall Street Journal number two, uh, which was awesome. And then uh that's incredible. Just don't let that roll off your tongue. That's, I mean, you're a Canadian competing against some of the top authors in the world. And this book resonated. By the way, it's digestible. And what Karen says is so important. You can, you can apply these things to business. You can apply these things to parenting. You can apply these things to your life. And I think that's one of the great gifts of that book. Thank you. Yeah. No, they can get the book on Amazon and uh, they can go to our website, DK Leadership. DK stands for Dr. Karen Leadership. And of course, um, we've got actually discussion questions for anybody who wants to uh, watch the TED Talk. I really believe that TED Talks are amazing when you can do it in discussion with other people. So we've got free discussion questions uh, for families, schools, uh, and teams. We've got schools now that are watching this uh, collectively, which has been so exciting. And we actually, as a family, watched it together for Mother's Day, which was like awesome. Uh, and then did the discussion questions. So really, and those are all on our website. Those are all free as a great resource for people just to kind of go deeper on it. But definitely, you know, jump in. These are things you can control and hopefully you feel empowered and really hopeful. I always end my podcast with my three takeaways. The first one is your ability to stand out. And it wasn't just to be the peacock or to command attention. It was to stand out so the audiences would be engaged. They'd be immersed. And that, to me, is a is such a big difference versus somebody that just stands out to be noticed. The second thing is the way you use the word choice. It's the people you choose to be with. They'll get you to the center chair. The choices that you make in partners, the choices you make in terms of the things that you do, your priorities in life. And, and choice is something we do control. That's such a profound word to leave people with. And the last one is the your superpower of turning your disability into your ability. And I've never thought of it that way from your point of view and is why I continue to believe you are Canada's Oprah and you'll continue to put a dent in the universe. Huge thank you. Deep, deep, deep gratitude to you and how you've really kind of walked beside me in this incredible journey. And I cannot thank you enough. So thank you so much for having me on your show today. What an honor. Joining me now is Georgia Belinsky. She's the Senior Director of Brand Strategy for RBC. Georgia, this is your first time on Chatter That Matters. I hope it's not the last. I've heard so much about you and what you're doing in terms of guiding and uh, a team for the strategy at RBC. So uh, thank you for being with me. Thanks so much for having me today, Tony. One of the questions I get asked a lot by small business owners is they talk about strategy. What's the difference between strategy and tactics? First off, let's start with what is brand strategy? I think about building brand strategy like 
building the operating system of the organization. You have to first kind of code what is the company's position. And then ultimately from there, your job becomes rewiring that organization or that company and every single touch point that's a part of the experience to behave in support of that position. That brand strategy needs to be able to impact millions of decisions across thousands of touch points every year. And so this kind of systems-based, flexible, but defined characteristic of the brand and strategy is key. When you step back from that, the tactics are higher expiry. They're not by nature as enduring as the brand strategy itself. So when you think about the tactics of how you bring that strategy to life, it's much more about opening your eyes to what's happening in culture. What? How can we make the expression of this strategy really relevant to either this moment in time or this specific point or need within a larger consumer journey? And so it almost breaks down the strategy into specific impactful moments where we have the opportunity to translate a larger, higher level strategy into a specific moment that meets a need. So I could see an organization like RBC that touches millions of lives and small business owners, even individuals, how important is it for them to carve out a brand that they feel it's unique and it's ownable and, and will resonate with the people that matter most to them? It's absolutely critical in this age of a battle for attention, a brand and carving out a distinctive brand position is the opportunity to have a point of view. That's where I always start and where we always start as an organization when we're defining the brand is what is our point of view and what do we think differently about that? That's the value that we have to offer as a brand. People are buying a point of view. They're buying a life view or a worldview from a brand that are they're aligned to with their values. And so it's absolutely critical to compete in the highly competitive marketplaces that exist today where people have, you know, unlimited choices to have a point of view and say something about it. What's our position? What's our unique point of view about that? And where do we live? And in some cases have to defend that in the marketplace for consumers. And when you're talking about having a point of view, is it more internally focused? This is who I am. Or is it more externally focused? Here's where you are in life and why I matter most to you. It's a great question. And it's one um, that we battle with as brand strategists all the time. How much is it about the brand versus how much of it is about the consumer that we're here to serve? And I actually think those two aren't mutually exclusive. I think real magic happens when a brand has an authentic and distinct point of view that the consumer shares with them. And so it's much less in that case about ownership, is it my point of view or yours? And it's much more about this shared common ground. If we believe the same things as a brand, we're doing cool and interesting things to articulate and share that point of view with the world. And as a consumer, I also think that in my own life. And, and so we can meet on this common ground of shared values-based branding. And, and I think that's truly where the magic happens. I also think that we've moved away in the last decade of brand strategy from there's internal brands and external brands. There used to be an articulation of both. What's your internal employee brand and what's your external brand? 
Now they're the same thing. The, the need for transparency, people want to see through your front door, see how you're doing business every day. It's one single brand. And so it, it actually, from a strategy perspective, makes things simpler as it should be. Georgia Belinsky, Senior Director of Brand Strategy for RBC. Looking forward to having you back again. I, there's an upcoming episode that I'm doing with Sarah Stein Greenberg, and I hope you join me for that one too. Thanks for joining me in Chat of the Matters. I would love to. Thanks so much, Tony. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.